I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Big Squid. My name is Justin Hamilton. And in today's episode, we're going to be recapping Chapter 4 of the Watchmen graphic novel, uh, before we get into it, I'd like to quickly cover a few things, including a hello to uh, lots of uh, the people who listen to this podcast. We have, and I hope I'm getting your name correct here, uh, Piotrek Zanaki in Dublin, who has been writing to me on Facebook and has been uh, fantastic. I appreciate your comments. Uh, Andrew Patrick, Linda Moulton, and to a bunch of our regular contributors on the Facebook page for all their theories. Uh, they've been great. I've really enjoyed uh, some of the stuff you've been putting out there. We seem to be really enjoying uh, talking about whether the the servants are clones or copies of uh, John Osterman and his first love, Janie. That'll be a, a sweet little twist uh, if that uh, comes to fruition. But, you know, who knows? But uh, I, I enjoy you guys throwing that stuff out there. Uh, we've also been having fun wondering if uh, Lady True is the comedian's daughter, which... If that turns out to be true, makes the dynamic with Laurie even more delicious in upcoming episodes. But uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll see. Uh, but uh, I'm appreciating you guys just uh, throwing it out there and, and and bouncing off one another. It's it's a fun little community. So uh, good work, guys. Uh, a thank you to Marcus Little for adding a voting system on who will play Doctor Manhattan. That is, if the character turns up. I know, but uh, if he does, he's uh, put up a little vote. Uh, for who you can uh, pick, who you think it might be. I'm all about Justin Thoreau, but it's that that goes back to my love of the leftovers. And uh, Marcus, I I forgot to add Tilda Swinton to the list because I just I I know that Tilda isn't a man, but I just think she can do anything, and she could she could probably act that blue junk in, into existence. That's how good she is. So let, let's try and throw Tilda Swinton into that list as well. Uh, Big hi to uh, my friend Jonas Holt, who sent me a very funny Rorschach meme. I won't, I won't ruin it. It's on the Facebook page, but it made me laugh out loud 
when I saw it. Uh, also, a big hello to Tommy Dean, who is a friend of mine, one of my favourite comedians of all time. He's in America at the moment. He's been wanting to know when we're going to focus on Looking Glass. Tommy, I have a feeling it's going to be the next episode, and I promise I'm doing my best to not say unpack all the time. Tommy pointed that out, so I'm doing <laughs> doing my best to change up, uh, you know, the wording for that. Uh, a big hello to Claire Keishel as well. Uh, uh, Claire is in America. She's a story editor and one of the writers for the TV series. And uh, Claire's been very generous in her feedback on this podcast. Uh, it's extremely gratifying to have her ears on our Watchmen waffle. Uh, keep an eye out for episode seven. Claire has co-written that one, uh, which has the title, An Almost Religious Awe. And uh, recently on Twitter, Claire said that the Watchmen writing team spent 10 weeks world building. And you can see that in the overall product with even the most seemingly minor of characters exhibiting more layers than some lead characters in other shows. So that that's catnip to me. Like 10, imagine that, spending 10 weeks with a whole bunch of really creative people helping to put together this whole world. Oh, sounds like heaven to me. Uh, make certain you remember to check out PDpedia or the Lube Man Chronicles, if that th- theory turns out to be true. Uh, interesting stuff about Laurie and um, also uh, some blueprints on a certain device that Laurie had with her, in case you were wondering how that worked. I don't know. Maybe you were. Maybe you were thinking about that, but it's up there and it's, uh, it's very funny to see. I need to let you know my mum is now adding theories to her facts and she wonders if Lady True is wearing gloves to hide her real age. So mum has always pointed out to me that when people have surgery to look younger, their, their necks and hands give them away. So there's a part of me that would love if one of her mild obsessions in life has unlocked something in the show. Uh, lastly, uh, I am still laughing my ass off at the image of an HBO executive reading the script for episode four and getting to the point where Jeremy Irons fishes fetuses out of a lake and like just imagine the looks on their faces or wondering what their initial reaction to that was. Like by by episode four, is is everything so out of the norm anyway? You just sit there and go, oh yeah, yep, fair enough. Or or do you have a moment of pause? Just a moment where you think, is this really happening? It is, and I am rapt that it is happening. Our guest today needs no introduction in Australia, but for everyone abroad, I'll give you some backstory. Richard Feidler is one of Australia's most decorated and respected radio broadcasters, and his show Conversations is the most downloaded podcast in our country. He began his career in one of Australia's seminal comedy acts, the Doug Anthony All-Stars, before presenting TV shows uh, like Race Around the World, Aftershock and Vulture. He then moved into radio, but has also released two brilliant books, Ghost Empire and Saga Land, both being big sellers, uh, both received a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, please go and check them out as well if you like Richard's work and, and you learn across these books. But most importantly for this show, while Richard was a member of the Doug Anthony All-Stars, he performed in Adelaide and worked with Andrea Gowdy, helping promote the Walk Against Want for Community Aid Abroad. This was a long time ago. 
and uh, the All-Stars invited her to their show and she took her 16-year-old son along. Richard struck a friendship with the lad who hoped to one day be a writer and, and Richard was very generous with his time and he read the young fellow's short stories and suggested that since they were funny, he should try stand-up comedy because it was a great way to develop your writing, travel the world and meet interesting people. The young fella did that and he's been in the Australian comedy scene ever since. So basically, you just got the secret origin of me. That's right, I was that lad. Andrea is the one who provides the mum facts. And if you're not really into my style of comedy, and it doesn't explain why you're listening to this podcast, but if you aren't a fan, well, you should blame Richard Feidler. Everything is connected, as we're about to find out in this episode of Big Squid as we discuss the life and times of Dr. Manhattan. So I always think you can tell someone who has grown up with the comic to someone who read it in graphic novel form by whether they refer to it as chapters or issues. And I was wondering where you fit into that. Definitely issues, particularly with Alan Moore comics. Yep. They are, although I tend to buy most of my comics these days in graphic novel form, I always buy Alan Moore's stuff in its installments as an issue-by-issue basis because they often require a bit of thought and there's something something delicious about each issue coming along. Mm. That, so you need to ingest the first thing and have to sort of spend a couple of weeks wondering where he's going with all this. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point, isn't it? It's uh, It also ties into the idea of, I'm curious with people who have read it as a graphic novel, you know how each chapter has those supplementary parts at the end. I wonder if you skim over them in graphic novel form, but when you were waiting for it uh, month to month or, you know, as as the schedule blew out, you know, every two months or whatever, you devoured every word because you, you needed to get your fix, didn't you? I have a confession to make. I never read the text of Alan Moore's just text-based stuff because oh, I really? don't think he's a good text writer. Oh, really? I think his stuff is always too ornate, overblown. It lacks the same sense of drama and restraint right. that he has, what he, that he brings to his graphic novels. I, I just find him verbose on yep. the page, but uh, when it's not surrounded by images, when he, he's not, when he's not uh, communicating cinematically, which right. he does on the comics page, because I understand he carefully plots out each issue and each each panel. In fact, yeah. When it, but when he's actually on the page, I find him leaden and and verbose. Unfortunately, do you find that sometimes with uh, comic book writers, like sometimes there is something uh, leaden's a really good way of describing it. Actually, I found that a little bit with Warren Ellis as well, who I love his work, but when I've read his other stuff, it always feels a bit like it's a you know, you, you're kind of pushing through it a bit, aren't you? Yeah, I agree. Neil Gaiman doesn't tend to go that way. He, he seems to understand the demands of the page, the the, the text-only page, as opposed to the, the, the comics page quite, yeah. quite well. Uh, but, but by and large, I think that's true, yes. Yeah, why do you think that is? I, I think that's just not the way you think when you're a comics writer. Right. You think much more cinematically, and then you then you bring to that all the advantages that, that the sequential narrative has on the page. Yeah. And you can bring symmetries into the, the plot 
uh, and the page that are much harder to achieve in cinema or in, in written language. So the very best comics writers I, f- I tend to find are, are just that, very good at that specific medium and are really alive to its potential and its opportunities. So I, su- I suspect that's the reason. Yeah, that's interesting. The uh, Was Watchmen your first Alan Moore comic or no. were you a Swamp Thing guy? No, I'm a Swamp Thing guy. Yeah. I, I remember the first issue he did of Swamp Thing, which, which I th- as I recall, reinvented who Swamp Thing was, that he wasn't Alec Holland anymore. He was really something else. Well, there was the, I think that was the second issue. I think that was issue 21 of the Saga of the Swamp Thing. I think issue 20, I think he, which people kind of uh, ignore a little bit, but he, I think he finished off the previous story. That was, I think maybe Tom Yates. Yeah, um, yes. And uh, whoever else was writing it at the time, I don't remember. Yeah. He he, he straight away announced his intention to go somewhere different with that. Oh, yeah. I can even remember where I bought that issue of Swamp Thing from. I bought it from Impact Records in Canberra and I was a uni student. I remember that. Yeah. And what was it that uh, stood out? Was it the was it the cover? Because it suddenly the the artwork was unlike anything I'd seen on uh, on the newsstand when I was a kid. Yeah, that's right. When Alan Moore started, that's when he brought in Rick Veach and uh, and, and Steve Bissett and Tottleman, and and so the art was suddenly much dirtier. Yeah, and there was like Tommy Yates' art previously was pretty good, but yeah, but, but the new art was was more granular and and swampier. And yeah. uh, darker in a lot and, of ways. And people were, uh, something that's uh, not really talked about in Alan Moore comics, people are ugly. Mm. Uh, so, mm. you know, you, you're so used to looking at uh, the beautiful people of the superhero world and uh, in in, uh, in Swamp Thing, people, like, even, even when he had to kind of bring the superhero uh, types into it, even then they looked uh, looked a little bit wonky. Yeah, absolutely. They looked like they didn't quite belong in that world. And there are often wrinkles on their superhero uniforms yeah. to make them look like they're actually, it's a costume that this person's put on. Yeah. So you were pretty pumped for Watchmen uh, knowing that it was coming out? I was. I was. Yeah. I remember it appeared, I can't remember if it, if it, I think it appeared just after The Dark Knight appeared. It yeah. was the same year as I recall. That's what I feel like as well. And I remember the advertising campaign for it was intense and interesting and it, it had its own distinct visual style yeah. that looked... Um, it looked really intriguing. And I remember buying the first couple of issues and feeling a little underwhelmed by them. I could see how clever they were. Right. But they felt they had a kind of, uh, uh, they seemed to lack momentum. And I was wondering, where's he going with this? There, there was they were, they were all suffused with all this ennui, like people at a funeral. Yeah. Um, someone's died. The world's bad. People are pretty gloomy and, 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 and negative about the way things are going. And it felt a bit dirgy. Yep. Uh, and it wasn't until... You got to issue four, right? But you really began to get some sense of the scope of Alan Moore's ambition, right? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this is the uh, the issue that really delves into the only person who has any superpowers, and with that, suddenly the story kind of blossoms a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. Um, under underrated in the creation of it is the colours of John Higgins as well, and I think the the palette was something that looked completely bizarre. In, in that world at the time. It was quite muted. Something about them reminds me of the comics of the early 70s, and I don't know why, and I think the colours got a lot to do with that. Yeah. Um, given that issue four, most of it takes place on Mars. Yeah. Why is Mars pink? I don't know. It's never explained. Oh, yeah. I've never really... You know what? That's just something I've always accepted. Maybe it's just hard to look at with all that red. All that time, all that maybe it's too hard to achieve that ochre colour of Mars because Mars isn't like bright red; it's no. ochre red. It's no. like Central Australia. Yeah, red. that's what I was about yeah. to say. Yeah, the uh, maybe um, 
Maybe Dr. Manhattan and his blue hues were uh, <laughs> not really matching up. Maybe so, yes. Uh, and were you a, and you were a superhero fan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, ever since I was a kid, I can remember buying uh, a Planet Comics, which was the kind of DC imprint in Australia. Oh, yeah. A, a flash black annual and white. in uh, black and white. I yeah. remember buying, getting, or my dad might have bought me a copy in... In, nine, in the 1970s and and then collecting comics obsessively. Yeah. There was something so strange. That, that was wonderful to me. I, I really wish I could still get that feeling I had as a kid about comics and how, how weird they were. Oh, yeah. There was nothing like them and uh, the, the stories they were telling were so weirdly ahead of their time as well and they were always bringing in interesting bits of science and uh, words I'd never come across before, especially especially when you think about Stan Lee and they're, they're so operatic and so therefore there's these words like, you know, gargantuan and uh, uh, omnipotent, yes. which I for years thought was omnipotent. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was more of a DC kid than a Marvel kid when yeah. I was growing up. I only had a little bit of – they had a local imprint in Australia for a while called – What's the name of the comics? I can't even remember now. It'll come to me in a minute. Of Marvel, early Marvel comics. So they, that's how I encountered the first Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, right. Avengers comics through that local Newton comics. That's what it was. Right. Newton comics. They had an ad on TV, TV for it, which was kind of wild. Oh wow. With an American accent saying Newton comics, Incredible Hulk, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so, <laughs> but I was I was mainly into the DC stuff. I remember those beautiful Silver Age artists that were constantly being reprinted in the Australian editions, like artists like uh, uh, Kurt Swan, Kurt Swan, um, Gil Kane, particularly yeah. his work on the Flash. Carmine Infantino doing yeah. The Flash. Uh, I, I remember a very specific Neil Adams advert, which was all of the DC heroes, and uh, it, w- it was a wraparound cover, and Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman were kind of caught in a spotlight, but it had Hawkman on the cover and Atom and all these other characters that I'd never seen before. I remember that specifically being one of my ways in looking at that cover and thinking, what is going on in there? I want to know. And then kind of kicking off from there. I remember getting Justice League editions where there was, they, they had their annual crisis with the Justice Society on yeah. Earth too. And and the idea that there were these kind of analogues for the Justice League on another planet that were from the 1940s right. that had slightly different costumes or very different costumes, like yeah. the Flash and Green Lantern looked very different in the Golden Age. Yeah. And they, they were the Earth 2 heroes. That really fascinated me. It seemed kind of deliciously strange and wrong and, and fascinating. I, and I, I can't even locate why in my mind that was so completely fascinating. But I used to stare and stare at those comics. And to this day, I've always had this absolute love of line art, even, right. even in any form today. I, I kind of like it even more than, uh, than painting very often right. today. Even today, the, the idea of the, 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 the sinewy line expressed through a, a brush or a pen. Yeah. It's still something very beguiling to me. I always loved the uh, Earth 2 Superman, was who was technically the original Superman, mm-hmm. if they were keeping that uh, timeline. And uh, he had the grey, had the grey yeah. in the hair, and he had the slightly, slightly, slightly different, different insignia. Yes. yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I was fascinated by that stuff as well. And I, I, I don't know about you, but uh, along with comics being so ubiquitous or superheroes being so ubiquitous now in popular culture, which to me is insane. Like when I was young, mum wouldn't let me go into a store by myself because she wasn't sure about the people that worked there. So, (laughs) you know, but, uh, but I find that and, you know, like on some of the mainstream news sites and they'll have articles about the multiverse and you're like, how, 
how did you guys get onto this? I know, I know. It's weird. Like I, neither of my kids are into comics, but right. my nephew is in a major, major way. Right. As obsessive as I was. How old is he? Uh, he's now sixteen. Yep. And he's majorly into into comics. Yeah. And uh, wants to work in superhero movies when he grows up. That kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, and to see that, oh, do you wonder what it'd been like to have gone to see a movie like the first Avengers movie when you were when you were like twelve? Uh, blown your mind. I felt like it blew my mind as a grown up. Yeah. Like, well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be sitting there. Uh, the, uh, the the Avengers movie, uh, the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, like they just and just these moments where you're sitting there thinking, Kurt Russell is ego the living planet. I'm sitting in a <laughs> cinema that is packed full of beautiful people, young people, old people, different nationalities, yeah. different sexualities, and we're all having a really good time. And even when I was a kid, I thought that was a bit naff. <laughs> and how did that happen? How did we get to this point? But. Uh, Tying it back to Watchmen, what I uh, what I find uh, fascinating with comics now is sometimes they will try to draw superheroes as if their costumes are real, and I find that to be really frustrating because I think the physics of the comic book world is you get your powers and you put on a suit that looks great, and that's what it is. It doesn't need to look like it's realistic. I understand why it needs to look realistic on the screen because that's closer to our real world. But when it's comics, it just needs to be drawn. And uh, what I found fascinating about watching, uh, reading Watchmen the first time was, man, those costumes are just like, they look awful. Yeah. <laughs> and they look real. Well, I think they looked like the, a lot of the superhero TV series of the 1940s where oh, the yeah. costumes had to be real, like, <laughs> yeah. the, like the Batman and Superman of the 40s and 50s when they were on the screen. They often looked a bit like that, a bit wrinkled and a bit, you know, not quite, not quite right. But, but the reason why superhero comics look like they're painted on it's because particularly DC heroes, they're, they're Greek gods. Yes. And it's a way of making them acceptably naked. Yes. I mean, because because they're absurd, those costumes. Yes. Yeah. Those, those ones that are so form-hugging, there's no wrinkles on them at all. They they show the kind of male and female physique to an absurd, absurdly yeah. detailed degree, except there's no nipples yeah. or pudenda. Yeah. And, and so so what, what we've, initially we were supposed to see them in the 40s, late 30s, early 40s, when superheroes first appeared, as being like wrestlers. Right. Because their costumes were like wrestlers. Because right. wrestling was huge at the time. Right. But soon they evolved into those skin-tight costumes that would reveal every ripple of the male and female physique. Yeah. So we would recognise them uh, as the New York creators intended them to look like, who were often had their heads filled with Greek and Roman mythology, like the statues of Greek and Roman gods that are in the uh, the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So they would have those, those creators would have seen those statues yeah. in the Met. I'm just guessing this. Yeah. Uh, had that education in mythology as kids. And that's what it turned into. They went from being wrestlers yeah. into Greek gods. Well, that's where, uh, if you go back and look at Superman, he's kind of in that uh, strong man, his uh, initial costumes in yes. that strong man world. He's lifting he's up cars. Yeah. And and he's leaping high. Yeah. He, he's not spinning the planet backwards. No. Uh, he's not traveling through time. No. Uh, he, he's not got super ventriloquism. No. No, or the ability to make a little Superman out of his hand yet. One of the, one of the best comics of all time. I long to see super ventriloquism in one of the kind of Zack Snyder Superman movies. It's all dark and and Superman starts going, hello, boys and girls, like that. I'd long to see that. <laughs> that would be fascinating. Yes, yes. When you look back on that action uh, number one cover yep. and there's Superman like, lifting a car. car. And everyone's, everyone's and, clutching their heads yeah, because they're mad. It's, all, like, it's all, insane. All the men are running as if to say, holy shit, here comes progress. Let's <laughs> yeah. get out of here. It's great. <laughs> it's so fascinating to look back on. Uh, well, let's uh, uh, go into the issue four summary. 
uh, which I will uh, read to you so uh, everyone can keep up with uh, where we're going to go. Um, this issue was called Watchmaker. And this issue covers the key moments in John Osterman's life before and after he became Dr. Manhattan as he reflects on his life while he embraces the solitude of Mars. In the wake of the bombing of Hiroshima, Osterman's father, a watchmaker by trade, insists his son give up his desire to follow in his footsteps and become a scientist instead. In 1959, John is employed at a research lab in Gila Flats? Is that Gila? I, I believe Gila? it is. Yeah. Uh, Arizona, where he meets and falls in love with a fellow worker, Janie Slater. They attend a carnival, and while there, a man steps on Janie's watch and breaks it. John fixes the watch and then leaves it in his lab coat. When he goes to retrieve it from a test vault, he is accidentally locked inside, and the vault is time-locked automatically and can't be open as the generators have begun to warm up to perform an intrinsic field removal experiment. We've all had them before. Mm -hmm. uh, John is disintegrated, but months later, a ghostly figure appears first as a circulatory system, then a muscled skeleton, until finally he appears as a blue-skinned superhuman with amazing powers that include the ability to assemble and disassemble objects telekinetically, teleportation, alter and duplicate his size, and sees time as a construct that happens all at once. Also has the ability to not be able to put on pants, so that gets back to uh, <laughs> yeah. what we were just talking about. Uh, because of his ability to see time all at once, it re reinforces his aloofness as he's unwilling to prevent certain disasters such as the assassination of JFK. Yet his powers allow him to be the US government's ultimate weapon and also develop futuristic advancements such as electric cars, etc. Even though he is back to life, he's removed from humanity and becomes distant and apathetic to those around him. In 1966, he breaks it off with Janie and begins to date the 16-year-old Laurie. Later, he and the comedian, the only sanctioned heroes by the government, head to Vietnam and win the war. Dr. Manhattan recalls Laurie leaving him and creates a giant glass palace that rises from the soil on Mars. And alone, he ponders the meteorite shower overhead. And this chapter closes with a quote from Albert Einstein. The release of atom power has changed everything except our way of thinking. The solution to this problem lies in the heart of mankind. If only I had known, I would have become a watchmaker. And... Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like there's moments with uh, entertainment and art where you suddenly realise something is beautiful. Uh, for me, it was like uh, from disparate things like the first time I heard David Bowie's Life on Mars, uh, the, the Pagliacci scene in The Untouchables. I'd never seen like uh, a gangster movie with opera. Now I know it's quite commonplace, but at the time it was like, oh my God. And uh, this issue here, and it, it really was a sense of beauty when I first read it. And I was wondering what your first reaction was to reading yeah, it. I was like that, absolutely. Like I said, it's the first time in reading Watchmen that I got a sense of the scope of Alan Moore's ambition for the series. Right. And that moment, it's beginning and ending with, with these kind of little... Uh, tiny little cogs from the interior of a watch laid yeah. out on jeweler's black velvet and they get thrown away and it's, it's so it's so lovely and it's really very clever and that statement by Einstein that you know if I'd known what was going to happen I would have become a simple watchmaker is is wonderful it's wonderful it just ties in all those kind of resonances with the title of the book and yeah. uh, and all those other things but there's another resonance there which I'm sure he was aware of which is that until Einstein came along the view of the universe was the one that had been laid down first by Kepler and then by, by Isaac Newton, which sees the mechanics of the universe as being like a giant clock mm. or a giant watch, if you like, a giant clock. It's, it's mechanical. The, the universe moves like clockwork. Um, it's, it's astonishingly regular. 
Mm. Things rotate around each other. They 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 orbit each other. Uh, they observe these laws of of physics, of, of motion, of gravity, um, with such beautiful precision. They're like some gorgeous bit of machinery. And what does that imply? That there's a god who's a right. clockmaker. God is a watchmaker, essentially. So that's that. That was. We're all, we always look for these metaphors to explain the world we live in. So it was very commonplace after Newton to see the universe as being this beautiful mechanism, this clock that was made by God. Then Einstein comes along and says, it's not right. It's not quite right. Because Newton had never, he could describe gravity, but never explain it. Right. Finally, Einstein comes along and explains why gravity happens. And it's because time and space is much bendier yeah. than Newton ever imagined. It's much more relativistic. And one's point of view, you know, or the point of view that you, any one thing or person is in is enormously relevant. You know, there's the famous uh, gravity is explained famously by that uh, metaphor of imagining a bowling ball on a trampoline. Right. You know, the, the mass, if, if it's large enough, it displaces enough um, spatial area around it that it creates this kind of whirlpool effect, if you like, but in, in three dimensions. Yeah. So if you roll a tennis ball towards that bowling ball on the trampoline, it'll start to sort of orbit around it. Right. But in space, that will just keep rotating because of inertia and so on and so forth. So, so, so now we have a different model of the universe. And the one that Einstein describes, which is really important for this issue, I mean, just going to Einstein because it yeah. points it all the, all the time, is, is, is hard for us to grasp intuitively. It's certainly hard for me to grasp intuitively. I wasn't paying attention in my physics lessons in high school. I didn't even go to physics. Well, there you are, <laughs> um, such as that I had, the, the few lessons that I had. Uh, so I've, I've spent some, some time trying to catch up on, yeah. How does the universe work? Cause it's so interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sort of allowing my inner eight year old to ask that question again. What are the principles by which it operates? And the more I understand, the more I come to know in a way, the less I understand because we, we have these caveman minds right. that are used to, uh, uh, that are very good at being successful in three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, time going from yesterday, you know, yesterday to today to tomorrow in this, in, in an arrow and three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time that are now that it sort of works for us as animals that need to uh, eat and propagate and have babies and go on in the world. But the truth, what we know now increasingly about the nature of the universe is that they're very likely multiple dimensions, um, that things happen at a quantum level that look impossible mm. to at the, at our quote unquote normal level of existence. And it's hard to get one's head around it because you don't feel it intuitively because we've not needed to. Right. The caveman brain that we have is not well equipped to really fully understand the implications of a universe that may have, according to string theory, a great many dimensions around them. We just don't have the kind of brain that's good at apprehending those. Really good physicists can do this, mm. uh, uh, but I just can't. I live in a world of metaphor and analogy all the time. Right. So that analogy of the, like the bowling ball on the trampoline, yeah. which creates displaces space around it and creates that kind of that effect. I get that. Yeah. But really what to imagine that properly, you have to imagine that at a three dimensional level right. whereby the space is being displaced all around it. Uh, and so suddenly it gets a lot harder. Right. And then, and, and I've always asked physicists this question when I've had them on my radio show, is space a something or a nothing? Right. Can it bend? Can a nothing bend? Or is it the parameters? Of the, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, this stuff really kills me and, and it hurts my head, Justin. And this is where dark matter comes in, isn't it? Because isn't the idea of dark matter is that fills in the gap of what we thought space was? 
to some degree, I understand. I'm not a physicist, but um, <laughs> but my, my my understanding is what what do we think that most of the universe is made up of dark energy and a bit yeah. of dark matter, and and that creates explains that explains the kind of gravitational effect of 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 movement of the cosmos at the moment. Apparently, right. that's what we think. That's what they say, but they've not been able to identify it. Uh, so there's still so much that's more more to be found out about it. I can remember when Stephen Hawking's book, A Brief History of Time, appeared yeah. in the 1980s. He sort of had this idea that soon we might arrive at a theory of everything right. that would explain how everything works, that would explain that would unite um, uh, relativity, which works at this the macro level, and the quantum world, which is weird. Yeah. Uh, the, the ultra microscopic level where things can be in two places at the same time. Uh, and once we've done that, we've got a theory of everything and, and physics is finished. <laughs> yeah. We're right, done. Essentially, we're done. We can go and go yeah. on with the rest of our lives after yeah. that. But of course we're nowhere near that. We're, um, more, more, more discoveries lead to more, more questions. I'm bringing this in a roundabout way back to Watchmen now. I know we've come yeah. a very, very no, long way good. from four color comics here. I know that, I know that, but, but this is, this issue is all about this idea of what right. is time and what is space. And if, 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 somehow a godlike creature like Dr. Manhattan could suddenly be manifest in the world, what perspective would they have of time and space? Well, that's really interesting because uh, the, uh, the the way the uh, comic is set out, I, I'd never seen anything like it before. And I'm sure, uh, you know, I guess um, maybe... Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five has, has that sense of displacement. But uh, for, you know, the young teenage me, I was just like, what is happening here? And uh, one of the things that I found interesting is that, that Dr. Manhattan's conception of time is an idea that theologians uh, sometimes use in describing God's conception of time. So uh, C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters, God, I believe, does not live in a time series at all. His life is not dribbled out moment by moment like ours. With him, it is, so to speak, still 1920 and already 1960. So I guess if John can see the world like this, does that essentially make him God in this or is he, is I, he something I, else? I think it makes him a God. Yes. I, don't, I think he's more like a Greek God right. or a Hindu God. Uh, uh, not a not a supreme deity that creates the universe like uh, the monotheistic gods of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He's not Yahweh, God, yeah. or Allah. He doesn't. He's the, the uh, Byzantine Christians had a lovely, lovely um, uh, phrase for what God is. They call it him a, a being of uncreated light. Right. Uncreated. So therefore, existing outside of time. Right. Um, I think I think John Doctor Manhattan in this series. Is a bit like that, but he he hasn't made the universe as such from outside of him right. or himself. But he's an observer from that point of view. A couple of years ago, I had on the, the leading American physicist, uh, Dr. Brian Green, on my show, who made a series called Cosmos. Um, oh yeah, it called Numbers and Cosmos. That was um, I'm thinking of Carl Sagan there. He wrote another series called The Fabric of the Cosmos. I called you hysterically after the. Uh listening to the podcast one day because I finally understood string theory from listening right. to him explain it. Okay. And I was in the middle of the city walking along and had kind of stopped because like you with <laughs> physics, I was, I've been trying to understand it for years and he just explained it in such a simple way. He did. He explained it very, very beautifully. Uh, I, I, I'd had his book for some years. I remember buying his copy, uh, a copy of his book, The Fabric of the Cosmos yeah. and reading it on the, trying to read it on the bus. Right. But but it was so embarrassing. It looked too Lisa Simpson like. So I put it, I put it between the pages of a of a shitty magazine, <laughs> porn magazine. Yeah, yeah, like porn magazine. Like it's, like, it's okay. He's just reading porn. He's not reading mind warping physics. So, so yeah, I was reading on the bus behind a magazine. I confessed yeah. this to him. It made him laugh. Um, but I remember him saying that um, 
that it's it's it, it would be possible. There is a there's an idea that you could stand outside of time, like if space can be out there. Yeah, time is like space, so the spa- time can also be out there. And in theory, such a point of view is impossible for humans. But in theory, it might be possible to 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 find a vantage point to stand outside all of space time, all of space time, and see it as one thing where everything's happening. At once, if you like, he likened it to a loaf of bread that you might be able to slice in any in in, in all sorts of different ways across sideways at an angle. Yeah, and that right. might be how you divide up time. Yeah, there's a theory. The reason why we experience we don't experience time that way is due to a theory. Of, and I'm, I'm hoping I don't get this wrong, but I'm like I say, I'm not a physicist. But the theory about the arrow of time goes like this. You know, there's, there's the second law of thermodynamics. This is a while we have this conversation about a comic, isn't it? But anyway, oh, yeah. 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 Um, well, this is why we're talking about this and, uh, you know, not uh, Civil War. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, so, indeed. Uh, so the second law of thermodynamics says that the, the universe is, is becoming more entropic. There's more entropy happening all the time. Right. It, it's sort of heading towards disorder inevitably more and more and more. That's, that's the nature of the closed system of the universe that we live in. And that... And because that means that it's much more likely a glass of water is going to fall off a ledge and smash than it would be for the extremely unlikely uh, prospect that the glass might be broken to begin with, spontaneously reassemble, hold the water and then flip, jump up on top of the desktop. Right. So that's vanishingly unlikely. Right. It's not impossible, but it's vanishingly unlikely. Yeah. So it's more likely for for the for the chaotic thing to happen, and it takes work to restore things back to its initial. So you have to expend energy in order to get make things fixed and, right. and cleaned up again. Clean. Yeah. Think of it like a teenage bedroom. That's a better way of putting it. <laughs> a teenage bedroom will always get dirtier and dirtier. Yeah. Uh, but so it takes work to fix it up and clean it up. Yeah. So because of that, because everything's tending towards entropy, that gives time an arrow that suggests that time is going one way. And this is why we remember the past, but not the future. Right. This is why we have the experience of time being dribbled out, as C.S. Lewis says, in days, hours, week, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, yeah. and years, and, and so on. And yes, his argument is that if there is a God, well, he, he thinks there is a God because C.S. Lewis was Christian, that God exists in a state of uncreative life, uncreated state, yeah. eternal, outside of time, or beyond time, or encompassing all of time within itself. And, and it's, it, it doesn't live under that law yeah. of, of time like we do. John, Dr. Manhattan is, is, is a god, I think. He doesn't create the world, but he, he, he's a, bigger, a figure of, of that kind of perception mm. who can stand outside of it all and perceive it all and sees it all as the one thing. All, and so that's the that's the way the story is told. That's why it's such a brilliant brilliant issue. This one, oh yeah, it, 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 where the the narrative is fractured because he sees them all as as, as fragments. As like, it, it'd be like if you got all the every single panel of this story cut it out and just threw it on the ground and picked up one bit at a time. It kind of works in his mind that way. Well, I think uh, that's fun, uh, funny that you say that. I think uh, uh, Dave Gibbons said that it wasn't until he had finished drawing it that it made sense to him. So even putting it together from, you know, from a creator's point of view there, even he was like, going, what is happening with the story? And then once he put it together, it all kind of made sense to him. And isn't there an episode issue called Fearful Symmetry? Because there's yeah. symmetry in each one of these issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's like, you know, like down to, I think there's like in the minutest detail, like in issue six, which we'll get to later, is uh, like there's a coffee stain. There's a there's a drop of coffee that is perfectly symmetrical as well, and it's uh I think that is the author uh, and uh, 
uh, wizard nemesis of Alan Moore, Grant Morrison's complaint about Watchmen, that it is so precise it doesn't leave uh, room for spontaneity. Well, I see. Yeah, I, I'm a big Grant Morrison fan like you, but I, yeah. I, I do think there, though, it's, we're making this sound like it's some sort of lovely jewel yeah. that might be boring. But oh, yeah. in, fact, in fact, the whole narrative is full of the animal energy of Alan Moore's ability as a storyteller to make you go, and then what happened, and then yeah. what happened. But it's all about what you know and when do you know it. It's something you kind of see in episodes of Breaking Bad, particularly right. towards the end of Breaking Bad, where, you know, the final season where, well, Walter White suddenly now, it's clearly a year later or something, yeah. and he's and, and he looks very different, and he goes back to his house. Yeah. And it's it's now it's it's now all, all closed up, and there's yeah, graffiti, graffiti on the walls, yeah. and there's kids skateboarding in the pool yeah uh, and you go, and then it goes back a year earlier and it fractures the narrative really well like yeah that. and and alan moore is very good at that he's very conscious of what do you know as a reader and when do you know it yeah it, it there's a there's a real huge narrative engine going through that that whole issue and throughout the whole series so it does have a kind of sense of time's arrow yeah uh, that pulls you along through the narrative and makes it really entertaining and enjoyable yeah, as I said, there, there is a sense of beauty to it. Uh, by the way, Breaking Bad also has a kind of uh, Watchmen uh, shout-out in the, I think, in the uh, Ozy, Mandius or Ozymandias episode, which is not only the title, which is, uh, you know, one of the characters the in this, poem, yeah. but also the um, there's the moment with Hank. And, you know, spoiler alert, you've had plenty of time to see Breaking Bad, but when Walter's begging for Hank's life, Hank says... He made his mind up ten minutes ten ago, minutes which ago. is Adrian's line in oh, uh, yes, issue yes, eleven. Yes, yes, yes. Essentially, you know, it's a, it's amazing to see in the world of entertainment the the echoes of Watchmen throughout. Uh, poor, poor John, I feel uh, I feel sorry for that character as well because he sees time and uh, you know he's seeing everything at once. And as you said, fragments is a really good way of putting it. God, it must be. No wonder he becomes removed from. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normal people because nothing would be exciting to him. <laughs> like, like imagine watching a movie with him. He would be the worst because he would comment on something, you know, that happens at the end because he's not quite involved. And that's why he has to 
delve into his scientific, uh, you know, experiments in quantum theory, etc., to to find things that that shock him and take him by surprise. And it must be, on on the one hand, it must be unbelievable to be able to see time like that. But on the other hand, it must be a hell of a burden. And that's and that's why you see things like I think it's. Uh, when he was in Vietnam and, and the comedian shoots that woman. And, and he, he does, does nothing. He does nothing. And it's really fascinating. It's almost like, you know, incapable of doing anything because it just kind of, well, that's just what happens. He's a, it's hard to make up your mind about the kind of character he is once he becomes like a god, as yeah. he becomes more alienated from his, his former fellow humans Yeah, as time goes by. You know, in the end, he, deci- he decides towards, in the later episode with his girlfriend, such as she is, yeah. Laurie, he decides in the end that humans are value. They do have intrinsic value mm. because of each individual's extraordinary rarity is that the word i'm looking for yeah, the, spon- the, the fact that we are the the highly improbable uh product of all those people meeting and having sex and having babies uh and surviving throughout the ages uh, time after time that that sperm reaches the egg yeah um each one of us is, is distilled into so rare an essence yeah that that the likelihood that any one of us in this world should exist. Yeah, is is vanishingly unlikely. Yeah, it's like you know, I, I was interviewing Hung Lee. You know, I mean, yeah, Hung, Hung, lovely guy. That he was talking about how his dad, um, how his dad met uh, his mum, and how he almost met someone else who was French. And he said, "Geez, you know, I might have been French instead." Yeah, and I'd say, "No, you wouldn't exist." Yeah, <laughs> it's not like he had to have you as a son. No, right. no, you weren't ever going to exist. He goes, oh, oh, and that really did his head in momentarily. But just <laughs> moving that, moving, putting that to one side, that the fact that humans can be this distilled into such a exceedingly unlikely. John says it's like gold suddenly spontaneously forming. Yeah, um, and that gives us a kind of a snowflake-like crystalline beauty that makes us so rare and unlikely that he thinks that gives us intrinsic value. <sighs> That's unsatisfying, isn't it? Don't yeah. you find that unsatisfying? Like, I felt like it was satisfying when I was young. Like when I was young, I found yeah. that to be incredibly romantic. And I uh, remember telling a girl uh, about it once. And uh, anyway, we're, we're, nothing happened, of course, because uh, I was talking about comics and that topic to a girl in the mid-80s who really just wanted to talk about Madonna. But um, <laughs> but it's uh, is, is it possibly... You know, Moore's way of having Dr. Manhattan kind of have a reason to reconnect with humanity. It's because uh, it's he's an interesting character because there's, I feel like the line that really sums him up a lot in this is uh, at one point he says, other people seem to make all my moves for me. And he's, he's really passive. Yeah, yeah, he is because he doesn't care. You know, like his dad tells him, stop being a watchmaker. You know, Janie's the one who seduces him. Seduces him. Yes. yes. You know, Laurie seduces him. He's, I mean, he just he kind of works for the government. When he when he's trapped in the vault, he doesn't rail and shout and scream. He just sort of stands there and looks at his watch. Yeah. Yeah. He's, and he's oddly passive, isn't he? Yeah. And it kind of follows him into that character. He's also naked a lot, and he's strangely passive. That too. Oh yeah. I like mean, a. Gee whiz. Like would it kill him? Would it kill him? Just, put pants on. Just put on some pants. I know. Particularly the scene when he's a giant. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> Terrifying. Terrifying. Giant <laughs> giant blue uh, in a mixed grill just dangling there in front of these <laughs> terrified people. I mean, please. Well, well also, uh, thank goodness he is passive because that could get, uh, <laughs> that could become awful. 
<laughs> you, there's a Hulk line, then you won't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> is, um, do, do you think the Watchmen world is uh, deterministic? Is that is that what they're sort of saying with, yeah. with the storytelling? Y- yeah. Y- yes. I, it's it's that's a really good question, and I I don't even know if Alan Moore knows really knows the answer to that. I yeah. suppose there's a. I mean, it's full of surprises. Yeah, isn't it? I mean. And there are choices made. And there is that moment at the very end where uh, Ozymandias, uh, is, is, he's destroyed half of New York and yeah. in order to create the alien threat that will unite the world um, and move away from the rink of war. And he's meditating in, in front of his orrery of planets in his Antarctic basin. Yeah. And John comes up to see him and he says, you know, he says did, it all, it, it's, did it all work out in the end? I did the right thing, didn't I? It all, it's all worked out in the end. And... And Dr. Manhattan says, nothing ever ends, you know. There's, yeah. There's, there's, there's no end to it. So Ozymandias is, is the absolute antithesis of Dr. Manhattan. He's, he has a sense of his own innate greatness and his agency in the world, that he will be a great man. He wants to be able to have something to say to Alexander the Great if he meets him in the Hall of Legends. Yeah. Right? And he has this sense that, like Caesar and Alexander and uh, Augustus and great change-making figures throughout history, I will change the course of the world. I will be that influential person that will change the course of human history. Uh, I have this overwhelming sense of my Nietzschean pro- protein qualities as a, yeah. as, as a human being. And because I deem it thus, the world will be this and not that. And Dr. Manhattan's message is that was all predetermined. Yeah. And you have less agency than you think. You have no agency at all. You're just a, a, a quite an interesting pawn. Yeah. In, uh, in a game that if you look back at it from, you know, enough of a distance, you're just that, just the, the, the kind of maybe, you're not a pawn on the chessboard, you're a, uh, a bishop maybe or something yeah. like that. But you're still uh, uh, something in a game that has rules and it's been figured out from right from the beginning. Yeah. I always love that at the end when he's a little bit, uh, oh, well, maybe I'll go and create my own people. <laughs> like he's kind mm. of been reconnected in that interesting way. Um the atomic bomb plays a large part in this story, and the fear of nuclear war in general. Uh, and in regards to dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, I didn't quite know this, but uh, President Truman's advisors wanted him to conv- continue with conventional bombing and then an amphibious invasion. But Truman was convinced he needed to take drastic action to avoid the massive casualties that would result from the undertaking. And uh, This is a huge debate that goes on today. Yeah, and it's like, it's such a... You know, this fits in with what happens in this story in many ways. The the giving up of the few to you know to save everybody. And uh, what what do you think history makes of this kind of decision? I, I don't. I in the nineteen seventies there was a theory that the Cold War between the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union and its the governments that were either its allies or the states that it occupied yeah. was going to end in some kind of convergence. Right. And that's the that's the future that's predicted in in Watchmen. Right. That the that there was some kind of great equivalence between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, that the idea of mutually assured destruction being the only thing that was keeping us alive between with nuclear arsenals that are pointing at each other uh, meant that the world was going to walk around in lockstep for a long while with with two major powers with guns pointed at each other's heads and so no one's going to pull the trigger in case the other person pulls the trigger. That's that's the logic of that. Mm. Uh, so there was this theory that said that if the Cold War was going to be resolved in the 70s, in the era of detente, it would be this kind of coming together. The United States would become 
would adopt more features of socialism in its economy and the Soviet Union would become freer right. and, and more liberal. It's not what happened. No. And, and to be honest, if you're looking hard enough, it was obvious that's not what was going to happen at the time. Right. In Czechoslo- I'm just writing about this at the moment. In Czechoslovakia, Eastern Bloc country, they tried to liberalise, introduce freedom of speech, and the result was a Soviet invasion. Similar thing had happened in Hungary in 1956. Right. 1968, the Soviet tanks invaded because the nature of that closed totalitarian system meant that you can't have a door open. You have right. to close the doors. Yeah. You can't have the free flow of information. This is something that's uh, troubling China at the moment. Right. How to be China in the world. Yeah. And have a situation where... Uh, People, the Communist Party doesn't want Xi Jinping being mocked for looking like Winnie the Pooh. Therefore, right. images of, I'm not joking, images of Winnie the Pooh are banned yeah. in mainland China as a result. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, that's weird. So, so the nature of, 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 of Soviet communism as it was in the, uh, from Stalin, well, right throughout its history, but particularly after Stalin, meant that it was a closed system that was kind of doomed to, uh, if it wasn't going to go into nu- a state of nuclear war with the United States and its allies, then it was always going to decay, if you like, and, right. and collapse. But both sides thought that of each other. The, the, the communi- communists were always saying the United States is going to, according to Marxist theory, it was going to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. Right. In the end, it was the Soviet Union that did that. Maybe America's turn is coming <laughs> for right, too long. Yeah. Seems, seems like it's underway at the moment in yeah. some ways, doesn't it? But so, so Alan Moore saw that what would be required would be some awful scare from a third party yeah, thinking outside the box, having this putative alien invasion, that would be the thing that would jolt everyone out of this, out of this idea that um, that we're in this uh, this 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 moment of destruction, this conf- conf- confrontation that can't be resolved. That would be the thing that would break break it up, and there would be convergence. Because in the final issue, there is convergence, right? Like there's Borscht burgers being sold in America, that kind yeah. of thing. You know that that yeah. idea. It's not what happened. No. It's not what happened. The Soviet Union collapsed and, um, and there was a liberalizing leader in the end. And weirdly enough, uh, what we thought was a very warlike president in Ronald Reagan who was actually prepared to meet and negotiate with the Soviet leader and, and take him up on his offer to uh, demilitarize Europe or remove its intermediate nuclear weapons. That's how the Cold War ended up right. happening. And only a couple of years after Watchmen was published. So that's yeah. not quite how it panned out. In the end, that there'd have to be this great convergence. So it didn't happen. So do you think that was what Alan Moore was thinking could potentially happen? Or is this more a statement on the character of Adrian Veidt being, uh, for the so-called smartest man in the world, maybe not that smart? Um, um, I, 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 I think Alan Moore was, like I say, promulgating this idea that they had a lot of currency at the time. Yeah. Which was that there would be this convergence, yeah. and it, it didn't happen. It yeah. didn't happen. Maybe I thought that's what was going to happen at the time too, but it's not what happened in the in the end. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, God Almighty, the United States was did some terrible and dreadful things oh, yeah. in that period. But it was it, the playing of moral equivalence between that and, and what the Soviet Union was like. That's a whole other thing altogether. Yeah, I mean, Stalin, who who built that system, was at least as bad a criminal as, as Adolf Hitler. Right, uh, and it, it wasn't really the same thing. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I think Alan Moore kind of got that wrong. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. He has an apocalypse in just about all these grand narratives. Oh you? yeah. There's, there's always an apocalypse. There's an apocalypse at the end of Watchmen. There's one at the end of Providence. Yep. Certainly a Lovecraftian one. Yep. There's one at the end of Promethea, a yep. much, much happier one. 
Um, swamp thing. A swamp thing. A, yeah. You know, the, essentially the 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 darkness. The darkness. Through. The Great Darkness Saga. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's fascinating. Is is that a product of uh, being young in the seventies and the eighties? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm younger than him. Yeah. But I grew up in the late seventies. By the time the Cold War heated up again in the very early eighties, I was in my, my final years of high school, mm. and I really didn't think I was going to live to see the age of thirty. Mm. I yeah. really didn't. I really didn't. I thought. Yeah. I thought it. It looked too hard. It looked un, irre, irreconcilable. The and what was really troubling was that as the nuclear uh, nuclear stockpiles kept growing, uh, decision time was being cut shorter and shorter all the time. Right. And there were a couple of accidents, like you know, a flock of geese would fly across an early warning oh, system. Yeah. There was a Soviet um, colonel who got an early warning that there, there was a whole you know, shitload of US ICBMs coming. Yeah. And he just went, I just don't think that's right. Yeah. Um, and the similar thing happened in the United States. The President Carter's national security advisor was woken up in the middle of the night saying the bombs are on their way. You know, you've got three minutes to, you know, advise the president to press the button and go the other way. This actually happened. Yeah. Uh, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor, just needed to find out more and looked at and was ready to die with his wife in Washington. Yeah. This is the world we were living in at that time. Yeah. It wasn't the kind of like slow feeling of, slow, slow dread of, of, the problems we're seeing with climate change at the moment. This was going to be a thing that was going to happen uh, really quickly. Yeah. And, and it was too stupid for words. And, and, and I remember even having discussions at uni where we'd say, is Canberra going to get bombed? Is Canberra going to get, oh, get the bomb? Yeah. And, and, and there was, and, and the, there were a lot of people, students, my fellow students were convinced we were because mm. Canberra had the Deakin telephone exchange, right. which, which, which was said to be the main communications uh, node in Australia. Therefore, the Soviets would have an interest in sending uh, an ICBM with a, a nuke on it, hydrogen bomb to obliterate Canberra. So that gave us some solace that we'd actually be atomized right. and we wouldn't inherit some blasted hellscape where we'd all die of cancer oh, yeah. after all our family had died. Yeah. You know, so, so that's, that, that's the way the world felt at that time. And it's hard to replicate that now. I love watching Chernobyl because it was, it really brought back that era so well, I thought. Oh my Lord. Yeah. Uh, I have not watched it just because of that. I'm working my way towards getting that feeling back. I, do you remember that 60 minutes uh, report that uh, they had a Russian diplomat, I think it was, from memory, and uh, he was talking about all the places that were targeted in Australia, and he even he even named Adelaide. I was like, oh, of all the times for Adelaide to get some attention now, you know? So I remember that conversation very well. The um, I actually think a lot of people in Adelaide would have been pleased by that, going, oh, oh yes, yes, well, we're they want to take us out, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right, yeah. We're, we're a target as that's well. Right. That's right, they want, to, they want to attack you for your John Martin's Christmas pageant. <laughs> Um, just on the last bit here, so, um, you know, talking about Dr. Manhattan's presence in this world is stopping, uh, you know, the nuclear, uh, option from happening. So isn't like the, the getting rid of Dr. Manhattan, isn't that like a crazy roll of the dice? Like, don't you look and you think, well, maybe rather than get rid of this guy, maybe we need to make sure that he remains happy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's a kind of plot flaws there, of course. Yeah. I, I, absolutely. I don't see why you need to even come about with that solution. Why doesn't Dr. Manhattan just simply t 
turn the world's nuclear supplies into butterflies or something. Right. You know, why, right. why not do that? So given that he's essentially a kind of a magician, really. Yeah. Why, why, why doesn't he transmute them to oxygen atoms or something? Yeah. Not butterflies, but oxygen atoms, you know, and, uh, or, or uh, life-giving rain, you know, or something yeah. like that. that. Clearly, he's capable of doing that. I guess, I guess Adrian is uh, a megalomaniac and he's worried that they would lose Dr. Manhattan at some point. So he's just going to push it along. But it feels like a feels like a proper roll of the dice. And the uh, I guess what's interesting is that um, Alan Moore then followed that idea through with Miracle Man or slash Marvel Man and uh, where the heroes literally bring water to the Sahara. Yes, and, and make and, a better world. And get rid of the economy. Like, that, yeah, Miracle Man's a really interesting counterpart to Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Because Dr. Manhattan's full of ennui and he's kind of bored by us, yeah. really. He's kind of bored by humans. Yeah. In the end, he says, we're so improbable that maybe there's some value in that. But he's looking at us like some kind of, you know, there was an, there was there was a Holy Roman Emperor that had a, a bit of a bit of quartz that accidentally, had, the veining in it had spelled out the word Christ accidentally. Right. And, and he went, wow, you know, that's what we are to Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. I think that's what we are, this this accidental thing. Yeah. Um, but, but Miracle Man was something different. One of the things I loved about Miracle Man was he enjoyed being a superhero and Miracle yeah. Woman, what was that a name? Oh, Ms. Yeah. Miracle or something. She enjoyed it even more. Yeah. And she was better at it. And she was better at it. Yeah. She figured out, she was way ahead of him. She'd figured out what she could do with what yeah. she had. Uh, and I, I kind of like that. I mean, all of our, so many of my childhood dreams were not about being specifically superheroes, but they're often involved having superpowers of flight, speed. Mm. Um, speed was one. Uh, traveling up into space. To, yeah. You know, that, that kind of. So, so whenever I see that in a superhero movie, I really appreciate it. Yeah. One of the most, um, I, I, you know, Superman movies haven't been that great, quite frankly. Mm. That Brandon Ruth, Ralph, how do you pronounce his name? Brandon Ralph, Ru- yeah. Ralph. That, that, that Superman movie from was the early 2000s or later. Brian Singer's uh, yeah. Superman Returns. It's got this lovely moment in it where, where Superman's sort of gone up into the outer stratosphere. It's oh, kind yeah. of on the edge of space. And he's just sitting there yeah. on a kind of imaginary throne, if you like, in his costume, sort of lounging in space like a god listening mm. to the world's radio and TV and sort of enjoying it. Yeah. And I, I, he's in this kind of moment of repose in his godlike powers. I think that's what it would be like. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I love the first Avengers movie. It's still probably my, my favourite superhero movie. Yeah. It's because the sheer exuberance, the sheer pleasure that the actors take in being Iron Man or Thor. Yeah. Particularly. Yeah. Um, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it'd be awesome being a superhero, Justin. It would. It would oh. just be just be fabulous. I get really annoyed with those nerdy uh, conversations that you have now and again when someone says, oh, I'd be Batman. I'm Superman all no. the way. Imagine all the things you can do. What are you talking about? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, of course. I, I reckon the mistake they make with, uh, you know, writing Superman is that um, if if you're that powerful, it, you're relaxed. It's like the cover dolls style mm. Superman where he's just sitting there with his shoulders hunched and he's just relaxed uh, because you're impervious. But I think what that would also mean is I reckon he'd be pretty funny and I think they write him too straight because you know what he doesn't need to do? Worry about shit. So he's really quick. Comedy's just speed. He, I think he'd be funny. I do too. I also think he'd have a gigantic heart. Right. He, he has to be like... He has to be like Christopher Reeve Superman. Yes. That's the real Superman. Yeah. Who, who, who is Superman? You know, he never lies. He's, he's, he likes people. He, no, he, he's Christ-like. Yeah. He has all this power. He really is an analog for Christ in a way rather than a Nietzschean Superman because he feels this overwhelming love of people in general. He, 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 he's not of us, but he, 
he likes us. He more yeah. than likes us, he loves us. And that's why he stays and doesn't float off to Mars and create crystal, crystalline cities like Dr. Manhattan does. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. I mean, well, okay, you've built this gigantic uh, crystal palace right. on the surface of Mars. For who? For I'd, him? I'd be... I'd be taking people there. Check this out. Yeah. And, and wanting a chance. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Rental property. Uh, it'd be expensive, but it'd be worth it. Um, I've, uh, I've got some uh, squid bits, right. little tiny things that yep. I thought that people might enjoy uh, to, to finish this off. Um, a little deep dive on Dr. Manhattan, which you would know this, inspired by Captain Adam, uh, another Charlton hero created by Steve Ditko and Joe Gill. Steve Ditko, like, his imprints are all over the world. Uh, Definitely, with, with Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. And Doctor Strange. Yeah, yeah. He created uh, those worlds. He's uh, Yeah, it's hard to say which is the greater achievement there um, between Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, I think. Visually, that whole strange magical world of Doctor Strange was so distinct and so original. Yeah. It's kind of like um it's like a, a Miro painting or something. I don't know right. how I don't know how okay he was with that that kind of high art or not. I don't I just don't know. But but that's so original. But then, you know, he's kind of good at showing a Brooklyn high school in uh, yeah. in Spider-Man 2. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't mm. it? The, uh, the 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 breadth of his uh Talent, but, but uh, I wouldn't have thought him. I don't. I wouldn't have thought he's the kind of artist you'd use for a godlike, right, Superman type character. No, his, his heroes tend to be stick-like and slender. And well, that's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Because that's the distinct moment of change in the first what thirty-six issues of Spider-Man, which he drew and pretty much plotted. And uh, you know, even as Spider-Man, Peter Parker looks like you know a spotty kid. And then, uh, then John Romita or Romita comes in, and then suddenly makes him more muscular. Makes him more muscular. Well, Peter and Parker's kind of handsome. And, Peter's and quite dashing. handsome. Yeah, 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 yeah. But before that, he was uh, very much that Ditko. I like them both in that way. In yeah. that sense, I like the idea that it felt like progression. Yeah, to me, and it felt like I, I, I felt much more like the early Peter Parker than the later one. Oh yeah, and and the idea that you might you might actually grow up and become yep. like the later Peter Parker. Well, that seems to some hope there. Ah, yeah. you know, have Mary Jane be interested yeah, in you, which right. would be great. So uh, so inspired by Captain Adam, whose uh, name was Alan Adam. Great. <laughs> A scientist who was accidentally atomized while working on an experimental rocket and then his body reformed into a superhero. That's the great thing about superhero worlds. Like, you get caught in a bomb, you get powers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's, it's better than the real world. Um, <laughs> this is interesting. Alan Moore stated that he wanted to avoid creating an emotionless character like Star Trek Spock, so made certain that Dr. Manhattan kept his human habits. And I think that um, in some way makes John Osterman the most tragic character in the in the series. I think he becomes someone who's so... Um, what is he? Like... He dumps his girlfriend, Janie Slater, because she's getting a bit old for, for Laurie, who's yeah. 16. Yeah. So what does he get from her? I mean, she's hot. Is that it? Is that I it? I guess. But does he do it because it's just what happens? Or, you know, once again, he's passive, isn't he? He doesn't make really any, like, I think, uh, by the way, not justifying his actions. Uh, <laughs> Let's just take that as a given. But isn't given, it like having, yeah. isn't it, to him, isn't it like having a better... Better looking cat as a girlfriend. Yeah, maybe. Better or, car. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. A better car. Yeah. Maybe mm. would it be like that? Ma I suppose so. Yeah. He's, but he's interested. Like he's staring at her. Yeah. In that meeting, he's staring at her. Yeah. He's attracted to her. Yeah. And flirts with her or 
right. in, in his own way. Yeah, it's it's hard to figure out what that is. And he gets angry too. He does get angry. He yeah. he, he he gets angry when he's flustered by questions he doesn't like in the TV studio. Yeah. Uh, he does have an emotion. He gets angry at Ozymandias uh, for trying to obliterate him once again. So. Oh, yeah. So so he does have these human emotions but seems to be drifting further and further away from them. Yeah. Makes out with a lot of women. Like, yeah. Uh, be, don't you think it'd be like licking a battery? I don't yeah. know, it'd be weird, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, here's a little uh, interesting thing that I uh, found out. Dr. Manhattan is the only character whose thoughts are shown. Everyone else writes down there, like you read Rorschach's journal or you read Dr. the Psychiatrist's journal, but he's the only one that in this issue... Oh, has an inner life. You actually read his inner thoughts. That, well, that, Right. Rorschach too, though, as you say. Well, you, in a you read his entry. journal, but like as, as a, you know, in comic books, you normally get the thought, bubble. thought, thought bubbles, which aren't in this comic. But it, this is the only one where you actually get the internal monologue of the, of the character. So who's he telling the story to? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, like Batman, you won. There's those diary entries. Oh, yes. Or The Dark Knight, they're like diary entries. Yeah. Um, I suppose he's telling it to himself. But, yeah. But it, he's he's explaining what's been happening to himself. Yeah. Hmm. Is he is he explaining it to a, for, a future self or reminding himself? Is he justifying himself? Maybe. Is, he, is, he, is it a justification for his actions? Yeah. It's interesting, though, isn't it? It's not it's something I'd never quite realised. Uh, and, and, and there's that moment when I just remember this—the moment, you know, when he's he's he joins the crime fighters of America and breaks up criminal syndicates. The crime busters, yeah, crime busters, and yeah. And, and he's there. He is in a den of iniquity, blasting uh, supervillains and ne'er do wells and, cro- and crooks. And he says, "The he's, he says something like the logic of this escapes me. The point of this escapes me. Yeah, uh, crime's a bad thing, actually. And it's why would it escape you? The logic of that—that's." I guess um, it, it also justifies, I guess, uh, why in that panel when he's thinking that the person that he's confronting's head explodes. <laughs> like he's uh, – so it kind of uh, – it, it, I can definitely see where he's, uh, you know, losing focus on why he should be doing yeah. this. Like, once again, you, could, you know, there's um, – you know, in, in Avengers Infinity War when – Star Lord shoots his gun and a little bubble comes out. <laughs> like he could be doing that. He could be doing that. My God. Uh, Janie's watch is broken and stopped at the time the atomic bomb was detonated over Hiroshima, 8.16 a.m. local time. Well, just one of those tasty little things that you notice. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't notice that. Is that. That's not pointed at, is it? It's just, no, a, it's just a clever little Easter egg, is it's it? It's just a little Easter egg uh, along with... Um, uh, when John becomes Dr. Manhattan, it's November 22nd, 1963, which is the same day as the Kennedy, Kennedy assassination, assassination, as yeah. you know. Uh, and this is just a, a fun little thing. The Christmas baubles on, on on page 11, they form little smiley faces. So all of that stuff is, you, you know what, I could do three hours on all these little things that you find in each panel, but I'm just pointing out a few here and there for people to Alan keep an, for. Alan Moore is an old-fashioned Renaissance Gnostic. You yeah. know, he's, he sees the world as a Renaissance scholar would, which is that that um, that the the universe is really all the one thing and, and it's made up of these invisible correspondences. This is really, I think, him as an emerging magician here. Mm. There's invisible correspondences that, that connect one thing to another thing to everything to the great one thing and that appears in his work all the time he sees the coincidences the strange little correspondences that um the 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 writer's mind can draw your attention to but otherwise you wouldn't see them 
that what's my, that's that's why his work suits the comics medium so well. Right. I, that's what that's what I think anyway. It, it allows him to use symmetry and those correspondences in a way that would just in, in the kind of velocity that movies and TV has. It just doesn't have the time to stop and think. Right. So you don't you don't stop and pause as you're watching a movie. No. But but Alan Moore knows how to keep you ticking from one panel to the next and then you stop. Yes. And you stop and you and you go what? Yeah. And you have all the time in the world to stop before you pick up and go along. You know, and he knows that as well because in the notes for Dave Gibbons when he was drawing uh this issue in particular, he made a point of, you know, the panel where uh, John Osterman is ripped apart. He kind of says to Dave Gibbons, you know, uh, and it fits in with what you were saying about your initial reading of the comic. The first three issues, we've given them funerals, we've given them this, we've given them that. On this panel, make it happen. Go for it. You know, when I remember, you know, you get to that panel and you just stare at it for so long. Where he's obliterated. Yeah. yeah the total obliteration of it. Yeah. The horror of that. So that's, uh, I guess that is a real insight into what you were saying. He has He's that really sense. good at horror. He's yeah. so good at horror. He began as this kind of, on this horror comic. Yeah. But he's never lost that touch to, and he's showing this in Providence, his most recent series too. Yeah. There's still moments that I don't, in, I don't know why they're not corny or even laughable, but they're not. Right. They're troubling. There's so many troubling images in them that, that are just like so close to yeah. being silly. Yeah, uh, and comically laughable, but but they're not. They're really troubling. There's trouble, and he just has the sense of what's wrong with it. The, the troubling nature of things that are, he knows how to unsettle on a comics page. No one's ever done that as well as he does. No, no, that's a really good point. It's uh, there is horror and silliness. They're they they it's a knife edge, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I always um, I always put it down to, you know. You had those nights where you have a bender and you go out and then it's four in the morning at some, you've seen some bar. You go, let's go in there and have a drink. And you're having a drink. And then some guy starts talking to you and they've got a weird voice and they're pretty funny. And then halfway through them talking to you, you realize we need to leave because this person's really dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he's very good at those moments, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, this kind of banal chit chat. And then suddenly someone says something that's really quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. He's like David Lynch in that one. Oh, yeah. You know, like that moment in uh, in um, uh, Lost Highway, that incredible moment. It's still one of the most chilling things I've ever seen in a movie where the- The phone? The, the phone. Oh. Yeah, where he's in that scene. the hairs on my arms, yeah. Richard. Yeah, they're standing up. <laughs> when he's there with uh, Robert- um, uh, Blake. Blake. In that scene, who's, who's like this strange gargoyle of yeah. a character. And he says, we've met before. And he says, I don't recall. He says, it's, I met you at your home. Yeah. In fact, I'm there right now. And calls him. Calls him. And he's there. Oh. It's, it's, it, there's so few words in that. Yeah. And it's it's just so great. And there's the sense of, the sound, I think the soundtrack has got the feeling of the sound of like blood rushing into your ears. Yeah. That's one of my favorite. I think that might be my favorite David Lynch film as well. And that scene in particular is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a hard movie to describe, isn't it? Like mm -hmm. in, in why it unsettles and everything. But it's, it's very dreamlike. Oh. And, and Alan Moore's very good at those sort of moments too. Yeah. Those moments when something just suddenly happens. Yeah. And it's awful. Yeah. It's really awful and, and wrong. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and the characters will, will be reacting to it in a way that 
just you feel that empathy with that. You so it, it, the horror really works. Yeah, really works. And uh, I don't know if anyone's ever done that in the comics medium as well as Alan Alan Moore. Not on such a consistent basis either. Yeah. Um, little uh, fun point to finish on. Uh, on page sixteen, John ponders a print of Salvador Dali's "The Persistence of Memory." which features a number of melting, melting clocks. clocks on tree branches. Yeah. yeah. So critics said it was a response to Einstein's work. But did you know that um, uh, Dali claimed it was inspired by seeing a wedge of melting camembert cheese? <laughs> and that to me kind of sums up art a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> like you, you can you can just see the most mundane thing and create something and people will project. Project all sorts of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get the feeling Alan Moore could listen to this whole thing and go, no, 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 that's not what I was doing at all. What no, are these guys talking no, about? No. They're idiots. No, except he does say Einstein. He does point at this stuff. Right. Uh, he, and he thinks about it a lot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, yes, yeah, I'm sure that's true about Dali. Yeah. It's fantastic. Whether he was engaged with Einstein or not, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it does look like a, a sloppy bit of can camembert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for being a part of uh, this episode. You're going to come back for, I think, episode 11. We're going to look at... Uh, uh, Adrian Veet and Alexander yeah. the Great. Alexander the Great. What I, uh, for the people listening at home, what I appreciated was when I first mentioned this to you, uh, not only did you say yes before I finished the sentence, you already nominated before mm -hmm. I'd even told you how I was going to do this. You already nominated. I want to do issues four and I want to do issue 11. And I was like, <laughs> you've got it. What does everyone else want to do? Rorschach, I suppose, or what? Uh, no, uh, a lot of people have uh, suggested uh, this issue. I think this is a as you said, it's a turning point. Mm. Um, but everyone else seems to be... Uh, my, actually, my friend uh, Ben Elwood, who was coming up for episode six, uh, was keen to do the the, the Rorschach with the psychiatrist episode, uh, especially because the lessons that come out of Rorschach really ruin a lot of comics in the next two <laughs> decades, don't you think? Like, like don't you find... Uh, I'll save this more for that episode, but it's like whenever there's a dominant performer or piece of art in a field, invariably it feels like the wrong lessons are learned from it. And so when people try to replicate it, you know, I always go, I always think of uh, when Eddie Izzard was big and then suddenly you'd have to do gigs with comedians getting up and going, look at me, I'm made out of cheese and thyme. And he's like, <laughs> no, he was, he, his, his surreal jokes were placed in something we all understood. I, th I think we should have a, a kind of a Kickstarter campaign <laughs> yep. to uh, organise someone to follow Zack Snyder around oh, yeah. and stop him from buying books or comics or seeing things of things we like so he doesn't sort of grab them and turn them into movies. Well, that's the, the fascinating thing about the, the movie that he made of Watchmen, which is... So faithful. So faithful. And bloodless. And what is happening? It's bloodless. Because yeah. the movie is so... Uh, the movie for format is so um, so narrative driven; it mm. doesn't allow for the symmetries yeah. to really work like they do in Watchmen. Yeah, that's that's the problem. Well, I think that's the thing that I'm enjoying uh, the most about the series is that you know it's not trying to do the comic because the comic's perfect in 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 that conception. So build on it rather than try to you know do those things that are already uh, fantastic on the page. Uh, but thank you very much for coming along and doing this. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. We'll be back with uh, more episodes soon and you will get uh, more of uh, Mr. Feidler in, uh, when we cover issue 11, which will be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. How great is Richard Feidler? That was the first podcast I recorded before the TV series began. 
and uh, very much like John Osterman, I'm I'm recording uh, specifically the chapters of the graphic novel all over the place. It all just depends on when I can uh, get some spare time with people who have been very generous uh, to to catch up with me. So that was the the, the first podcast that was recorded. And uh, spending time with Richard helped me get a handle on how this podcast was going to come together. So uh, I'm glad that I started off there. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. And we'll hopefully be able to get Richard back to discuss Alexander the Great and Veidt's Madness in Chapter 11 of the graphic novel. Also make certain to check out Richard's podcast and his two books, Saga Land and Ghost Empire. Uh, And uh, if, if you like... Uh, the sound of Richard's mellifluous voice. Uh, His writing is uh, very much in keeping with how he sounds. If you enjoyed the show, uh, can you please give us a sterling review or star rating on whichever platform you use? And if you know any friends who would enjoy this, please pass it along to them. Only people that are into it, like, don't pass it along if uh, it's not their kind of thing. We want to keep this, uh, you know, to us. You know, it's just us guys, and that's good. So, uh, Uh, But if you know anyone who would be into it, please pass it along. Uh, There's blogs about the show at my site, uh, justinhamilton.com.au. There's some short stories there if you'd like to check them out as well. Uh, If you'd like to join us on Facebook, there's an open page, uh, Big Squid with Justin Hamilton, that you can like. Or better yet, there's, there's a bunch of crazy fanatics all discussing the show in a private conversation... Anyone can join. It's just private, so we can write about what's happening. We can throw crazy-ass ideas and and theories out, and and we don't have to keep writing spoilers at every turn. So if if you'd like to really (laughs) get amongst a really fun crew, uh, come and join us at the Private Conversations uh, as well. Uh, I'll be in Brisbane Next week, that's right, I'm performing at the Sit Down Comedy Club. Uh, The dates are the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of November. Uh, Katrina Davidson is on and uh, Lindsay Webb, so two friends of mine. So that should be a fun night. And uh, coming up a little bit later, uh, Katrina's husband, Stab Davidson, will be joining us to recap one of the episodes while I'm up in Brisbane. So if you're if you're up there and you are, you want to come along to a show, uh, please do and uh, and if you do come and say hello afterwards. It's all um it's always great to meet you in person and you know, we can have a drink and we can really get stuck into these theories about the show. It's always a pleasure to have your company. I appreciate you taking the time for listening and writing in. I, I don't take it for granted. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a real joy to hear from you as well. Our next podcast will recap episode five of the series, and I'll be joined by Alexi, Ben, and maybe a little more tequila to really give the show that extra bit of zing. I feel like that tequila was what helped unlock <laughs> Agent PD's lips for Alexi. It's still making me laugh so much that whole episode between lube man and and alexi and ben afterwards it's uh it has honestly been uh, one of the highlights of the year the show the whole thing the company etc thanks once again and in the immortal words of australian boxer jeff Fennec, i love yous all <laughs>
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.